Please get your Bibles out to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. We've been uh, going through the book of Ephesians this summer and particularly looking at practical applications of the gospel. We uh, spent a few weeks on what the gospel actually is and now we're going through the rest of the book and trying to figure out what, is it, what does it mean to us, how do we actually live it out. So uh, get your Bibles open to Ephesians 4. Today we're talking about a subject that is applicable to all of us. We're all trying to change. We're all unhappy with our lives to a certain extent. And so today we're going to talk about what it means to change and how we can actually do it. Let's read together Ephesians 4:17 to the end of the chapter. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to the hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Well, there's clearly a contrast between two ways of life. There's the old self, as Paul calls them, the Gentiles, the unchristian people, those who have not been affected by the gospel, unconverted way of life. And then there's the new self, the Christian way, the gospel way of life. And the command here is clearly to put off the old self, like you take off clothes, so take off the old nature and put on the new nature in Christ, the new self. Two ways are described and contrasted. And then Paul talks about this transition from the old to the new. And he says that it happens through the renewal of the spirit of your mind. And we'll talk about what that means. So that's what we're going to look, look at today. We're going to look closely at both ways, the old and the new. And then we'll discover how we can put it off and put off the old and put on the new. So our outline is... Number one, what we were or are in some cases. Number two, what we can become in Christ. Number three, how we can actually change from what we were to what we can become. 
Now, if you're not a believer, if you're not a Christian, you don't claim Christ as your, your God and your Savior, I think this will help you recognize from God's perspective who you really are, how God sees you. And I think you'll find a lot of things that will ring true to you this morning. And I hope that we'll be able to paint a picture for you of what God wants you to be and how much better it would be if you would go that way. And of course, if you are a believer, this text will encourage you to live like one and will tell you how you can actually do that. So let's talk about the old way of life, what we were or what some of us still are. Verse 17, Paul says, No longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to the hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Now, if you read this carefully, you will see that all parts of the human psyche of what we're made of, of our composition, are affected with this old way of life. Paul talks about the mind, the futility of our thinking. He talks about our desires, being deceitful desires corrupting us. Then he talks about behavior, of course, sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. You see, this universal sinful condition, according to Scripture, affects all aspects of the person. The damage is extensive. One writer puts it this way. He says that the old self or the sinful self is rooted in wrong thinking and wrong desires and results in wrong responses to life. Wrong thinking, wrong desires result in wrong behavior. So let's talk about those three parts. Wrong thinking, wrong desires, and then wrong behavior. Paul says that the old self self is marked by ignorance, darkened understanding, the futility of mind. What does that mean? Well, I think the assertion that Paul is making here, and Scripture in other places confirms that, is that outside of Christ, we've not been affected by the Gospel of Jesus. We simply do not understand what we are supposed to know. That we can't think straight Our minds are empty of true perception of reality. One commentator puts it this way. He says, Because it lacks a true relationship with God, Gentile thinking suffers from the consequences of having lost touch with reality and is left fumbling with the name trivialities and worthless side issues. You see, without revelation from God, if you don't know what God thinks of reality, without God telling us how things really are, without looking at the world and at ourselves in light of God's existence and activity, we simply can't get a good grasp on reality. We just don't know what the world is really like. And so what do we do then? Well, we construct our own reality, of course. If you don't know the way things really are, then you start imagining how they you think they should be. And so you create your own reality. And so you put things in certain places in your life and in your mind where they don't belong. That's what Scripture calls idolatry. In fact, this word futility is often used of idolatry in Scripture. Meaning that we place a certain weight on a person 
or a thing or a cause that they simply can't bear. Now, imagine, most of you are Christians, but imagine when you were not a Christian, and if you are not a Christian this morning, and you don't know that God is the one to be worshipped. If you simply don't know that God exists, and God has to be at the center of reality, something has to be there. It's not going to be vacant. Something is going to be there. So you're going to put something or someone at the center, and you will worship them. If your mind is futile, if your thinking is darkened, if your understanding isn't there, you're going to make up your own reality. And so what do we do? Well, we put work at the center. We put uh, a spouse or a child at the center. We put our own pleasure at the center. We put food at the center. We put sex at the center. And what happens is then, then we worship that and we think this is how reality is supposed to be. The way it's supposed to be constructed is with this thing at the center. And because you don't know, as Paul says, because of the ignorance, they just don't know where God is supposed to be or if God is really there at all, our whole view of reality is now skewed. It's different. It's wrong. It's, it's not right. And so we start thinking and continue to think of reality as something completely different. You see, all idolatry is based on ignorance. We just simply don't know, don't realize that it is God who needs to be worshipped. And so we look for another object of worship. And such a life, of course, is marked by futility because if we assign more worth to something that simply can't bear it, it's just not the way God made it. It's not gonna it's not gonna deliver on the promises that you yourself assign to it. So if you pursue these things and you set your hope on on things like work and pleasure and family, not just negative things, but good things, you will be disappointed because they will never deliver, they just can't. That's not how God made them to be. Now, our thinking is wrong, and then that produces wrong desires as well. Paul says that the old sinful self is corrupt through deceitful desires. So starting with this false understanding of reality, which leads to idolatry, we now direct our desires in that wrong way. Now, notice the paradox here. On the one hand, Paul says that they've become callous, meaning unfeeling or dull, right? like a callus on, on your hand or on, on your toe. We become calloused. But on the other hand, Paul says that they've given themselves to sensuality, meaning the indulgence of the senses. So how can it be that on the one hand we are callous, we don't feel enough, on the other hand we try to feel a lot, maybe too much, by pursuing our senses? Now this is the way the old self works. It reverses the priority of the sensual over the spiritual, and vice versa. Now this, I'm going to give you an illustration of this. Jonathan Edwards uh, talks about physical desires like hunger or desire for pleasure or, or for company. He likens them to the flames in the fireplace. And he says that as long as the fire is in the fireplace inside the house, it's wonderful. It serves its function. It fulfills its role. It brings light and then brings worth 
warmth to, to the house. But if you get it out of the fireplace, if now the fire starts in the middle of the living room, it doesn't work anymore, does it? It doesn't fulfill its function. Even more so, it becomes tremendously dangerous because now it has the potential to burn down the whole house. So what Edwards is saying, which I think is very helpful as we look at this particular passage, is that when we take the physical senses, those physical desires that are to be lower desires by God's design, now we put them at a higher plane. We get them out of the, the place where they're supposed to be. Now we spread them all over the house and we pursue all sorts of sensual things. I don't think he's just talking just about sexual things. I think he's talking about anything that indulges our physical senses. And when that gets out of its proper place, it becomes damaging and becomes dangerous. So in other words, when God created us, He created us both as physical and spiritual beings. God wants us to be hungry and to be satisfied. God wants us to have a sexual drive and for that to be satisfied. God wants us to be thirsty and to drink and to feel good, right? That's part of God's design. But over those physical desires, God put spiritual desires. Searching for the satisfaction in God alone, looking for fellowship and meaning and joy and peace with God and fellowship with Him. And those higher desires are supposed to control the lower desires. They're supposed to keep them in check. So when you go hungry, you don't just murder somebody and eat them, right? What holds you back from that? A spiritual desire. I know, it's a little shocking. It's a spiritual desire. There's a certain morality in you. There's a certain spiritual thing inside of you, a spiritual structure that holds you back from that. Now what happens in the old self? Those restrictions have now been lifted. And you can pursue the sensual without the concern for the spiritual. Now, praise God, not all the restrictions have been lifted. Through our community, and through parenting, and through general human morality, and through conscience, and things like that, God still keeps some of that in check. But the tendency of the old self is to pursue the sensual at the expense of the spiritual. Now, let me take Edward's analogy a little bit further. He couldn't have made it because when he lived there was no electricity, but we have electricity now, so let me make this analogy. Let's liken our higher desires, those spiritual, moral desires for satisfaction and joy and meaning in God to electricity in the house. So in our fallen state, in our sinful state, it's as if we lost electricity. Let's say you had a big storm and you have no electrical power in your house. And now we try to use fire, because we have a fireplace occasionally on a romantic evening, you light it up. But now we try to use that fireplace to light the whole house and to warm the whole house because your heat was electric as well. Without electricity, you try to overcompensate by what you have, the fire, to light up the whole house. And of course you can't do that. You can't do that and keep the fire in the fireplace. So what do you do? You light a bunch of candles, right? And then pretty soon you're cold in your bedroom and you start lighting little fires in your bedroom, in the middle of the room, in the middle of the bed. What happens? You, you can't do that, right? It's, it's dangerous. It's threatening. It's going to burn down the house. Now what have you done? You took something that has a specific purpose in your house and now you've tried to achieve a completely different purpose with it. And there's no satisfaction in that. It's futile. You will never be able to do that. 
It's not meant to do that. Now that is what happens when you are when you have reversed the priority of spiritual over sensual. Now, like I said, God has given us senses and desires, physical things, for a good reason. This is part of who we are. But they need to be kept in check by the spiritual, moral desires. Now, a person who is described in Scripture as callous, let's say there's a dullness that comes, there's a spiritual and moral dullness. Now this person is trying to use the fire of the physical desires to light up the whole house and to achieve the satisfaction that only spiritual desires can produce. So what happens? Anything that feels good is going to be pursued. Anything. So of course, I think it's clear that at least part of what Paul is talking about, he's talking about sexual pleasure. He's talking about every kind of impurity every kind of inappropriate sexual behavior, anything that feels good, and you, you just rush there, you try to get it, you try to get the joy and the meaning and the satisfaction from it. And of course you know, some of you who have had that kind of past or you have this kind of present, you know that it never ends. You can never get satisfaction. You always go to the next level and to the next and to the next. Because the physical is not supposed to give you that deep satisfaction. It just can't. But I don't think Paul is talking about just the, the sexual behavior. I think he's talking about any sort of excessive living. So let's talk about more usual things that all of us can identify with. Overeating. What are you doing when you eat too much? When uh, you, like me, you try to find comfort in a specific meal, when you try to shop in a specific way. I'm telling you probably too much information about my own life. But when, when you try to just just arrange it just a certain way and watch a specific show with it? Jillian? Why? Why am I doing this? Why are you doing that? I think we're trying to get something out of food that God never meant for us to get. Yes, we're supposed to enjoy food, of course. Of course. It's just God's gift. But if you place all this burden of worship on it, it can deliver. And so we overeat, so we look for that other flavor, for the next combination of things that might produce that high, and it just can't, it just can't do it. Well, maybe you're not like me, maybe you don't enjoy food as much, but maybe you overwork, and you just push yourself and push yourself, and you keep going, and you get another job and another job, and you try to get that next promotion. Why are you so driven to succeed? Why are you so driven to always be working? Why? You're trying to get something out of it that God never meant for you to have out of that. And so you're using the physical. You're using your mind and your body to get that peace and joy that is just not there. Now let me use another example. How about oversleeping? We don't talk too much about that at church, right? Unless you show up late with your hair uncombed. That's the same thing, friends. It's the same mechanism in your heart that makes you oversleep, that makes you overeat and overwork and indulge your sexual fancy. It's the same thing. You're trying to get something out of it through physical, central means that is just not there. And because the spiritual and the moral senses, the moral and spiritual desires are not strong enough and as a Christian, they continue to grow in strength. As a non-Christian, you, 
They're very dull. They're dormant. And because they're not there or they're so weak, you cannot overcome things like, I'm just going to get up on time or get up early because I need to do something. You can't fast because food is so important to you. Why are, why are we fasting at church? In fact, that's one of our biggest goals for this year is to fast. It's a very simple goal. Why is it so hard for us to fast? I know how hard it is for me. I imagine it's just as hard for you. Why is that? I have placed too much emphasis on the physical satisfaction I derive from food. And so I do that at the expense of the spiritual satisfaction I sense in God alone. So what's the solution? Fast. Give up food. Give up food for a day so that your spiritual senses are now awakened. So now you realize that you need God more than you need food. That there's more joy in God than there is in food. That's why we fast. It's very simple. You give up something that is right and good, and yet that serves as a distraction from something that is better. That is God Himself. And so in the old self, there's this unquenchable, insatiable pursuit of the sensual. And it is futile in its nature. It will never get you where you hope it would. So wrong thinking, wrong desires, that leads to wrong responses to life, wrong behavior. A few other things are mentioned here as well. You know, bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander, along with all malice. And if you read this phrase, you will see that there's a progression. Bitterness, right? Something that's inside of you, eventually comes out as clamor, which is loud arguing and fighting and brawling. Some translations translate it as brawling. And slander, when you actively try to hurt someone else with your words. You see, what happens is what starts on the inside, in your mind and in your heart, now is going to come out in such nasty things as slander and brawling. Wrong thinking, wrong desires, result in wrong behavior. Let's mention just one more type of wrong behavior here on the list. It's stealing. Paul says thieves should no longer steal, but they should work and share what they earn with others. Now, not many of us actually are thieves, right? That We actively go and rob and steal and take something. But all of us have a tendency to use something that is not our own for our own benefit. Benefiting from something that was earned by another instead of honestly working. And that's just another example of the old safe behavior. You see, the, the, the reality, understanding of reality is skewed, so I no longer know what's mine and what's not mine. I'm going to take something. I'm going to take someone's time. In a relationship, I'm going to be the one always talking about myself. That's stealing. You're stealing their time and you're stealing their energy. And at work, I'm going to take things that are not mine, perhaps physically. I'm going to take credit for something I didn't do so I can get that promotion. Why is all this happening? Because we don't have the right understanding of reality where God is at the center. Because our moral and spiritual senses are dull. And we just don't know what to do. And it will inevitably result in behavior. You know, in my you know, line of work and my life, it's, it's very easy to focus on behavior at church. It's very easy to say, you have to behave this way. Stop doing this. Start doing that. And yet it is a very superficial way to look at things. A better way, a gospel way, is to look at the desires and the thoughts that produce that behavior. And if that person can 
get a hold of their thoughts and their desires. And if that could be changed, then behavior will inevitably follow. All right, so that's the bad picture. That's the old self. Let's look at the good picture, what we can become. Listen to what Paul says here. After describing this old way of life, he says, but that is not the way you learned Christ. He's addressing Christians and he says, that's not the way you heard about Jesus and you were discipled, you were brought up in the faith, that's not what you've learned. Meaning that when the Ephesians heard the gospel, they learned that in Christ they are to become a new person. They are to put on the new self. Paul says that the gospel of Jesus includes the promise of a new life and the command to pursue holiness and righteousness. The gospel provides us with power to change. Now, I, I'm, I'm, this is an aside, just really quickly. But Sometimes you would hear a preacher, you would hear a Christian say, Jesus loves you. He's ready to forgive you. All you have to do is just to accept it and there's nothing else. And they leave it at that. Friends, let me be very straightforward with you. That is not the whole gospel. It's just not. You read scripture and there's a lot in the Bible about a different kind of life. And yes, the gospel is always accepted by grace. Yes, God is not saying, do this and then I will bless you. That is not true. But God is saying, accept the gospel and be changed. What is Paul saying? Put off the old self, put on the new self. And in the middle of that is the gospel that gives you power to change, that gives you a pattern of a new life. So when you're talking to Christians and somebody says, yes, I am a Christian because when I was four and a half years old and I was at VBS at, at, this, at my grandma's church, I accepted Jesus into my heart. It is right to look at their life and say, is there any fruit? It is right to do that because part of the gospel is this impetus to change. If you understand the gospel, if grace has come into your life, of course it will change your life. And if it's not changing your life, it is appropriate to ask if grace really came in, if conversion really happened. It's very frustrating to be talking to Christians who claim Christ and have no intention of changing. That grieves God. It hurts Him. Because when He calls you to Christ, He also calls you in the same call, He calls you to a holy and righteous life. Please, don't deceive yourself into thinking that you can have Christ and have Him have no effect on your life. That's not Christ that you have. I feel very confident in saying this because Scripture is full of commands to live a holy life. Now let's look at what we are commanded to become. Unlike Christless Gentiles, the unconverted people, ignorant of reality and futile in their thinking, we have the truth in Jesus. I understand that when you put those two words together, the and truth, right away you open yourself to criticism. Because many people today believe there's no such thing as the truth. There's many truths, there's many ideas, but there's not one truth. There's not the truth that we can all cling to. 
Scripture disagrees. Jesus disagrees. The church disagrees with us. Of course there is the truth. Of course there is one understanding of reality that is true because God is at the center of it and because God tells us it's true. Why would we question that? Why would we doubt that? You see, in the Gospel, if you're a believer, if you're a converted Christian, in the Gospel, you have the truth. You know exactly what life is supposed to be like. You know exactly what reality is like. You know what's real and what's not. You no longer need to be deceived about those things. Sure, the unconverted, those without the influence of the Holy Spirit, are deceived. But if the Holy Spirit comes into your life and changes you and reveals you the truth of the Gospel, you have the truth. You know that your main problem isn't lack of education. It isn't lack of health care. It isn't lack of parental oversight. Your main problem is that you are a sinner. And God provided a way for you to be saved in Jesus. And unless Jesus comes in and changes you, unless you get what happened on the cross and in the empty tomb, and how that affects your spiritual state, you cannot live a life that's pleasing to Him. In the Gospel, we know that. We know that Jesus died because He had to die because we're sinners. But we also know that he died because he was happy to die for us because he loves us. And that when he rose, he promised us a new life. A life of holiness and righteousness resulting in eternity with God. That is the accurate understanding of reality. With God at the center, with us on the fringes, with grace coming from the center out, blessing us as we trust Jesus and rely on the Holy Spirit. We have the right understanding of reality. We can think rightly as Christians. Paul says that we are to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. If the unconverted person is alienated from the life of God, the converted Christian embraces and enjoys the life of God, this divine life, this life where spiritual and moral desires rule over the sensual. We become like God in righteousness and holiness. We start thinking and feeling and acting like God Himself through the power of the Gospel. Everything else that follows is rooted in that. That when you get God, you become like God, and so you become thinking and feeling and acting like God Himself. Isn't that great? God doesn't just reveal to you that He is at the center of reality, He welcomes you into it. And He says, you can be like Me. You can know what's real. You can feel what's real. You can act in a real way. And so all these things, and I'll pick just a few to give us a, a clearer picture of what a life with the new self looks like, but all of that is rooted in this transformation through Christ. Verse 25. Paul says, Heaven put away falsehood let each one of you speak the truth to his neighbor. God speaks the truth, so do we. We are changed into truthful people. We should not pretend in front of others or be hypocritical or say things that will make us look better than we are or to appease others or to get their praise. We are to be truthful because God is truthful. Verse 26, Be angry and do not sin. Anger is put in its appropriate place through the gospel, through the new self. We can be angry at what God is angry. We should be angry at what God is angry. 
and yet we can still do it without sinning. How can that be? How can that be? Because very often we just associate anger with sin. Not true in Scripture. There's appropriate anger, and that anger is directed at something that God is angry with, namely at sin and unrighteousness. And if you are angry at unrighteousness and sin, and if you're angry in the way that God is angry at this, you're always seeking the benefit of the person. You're not angry at the person, you're angry at what's going on with them, and so you want them to rise up, you want them to be healed, you want them to do better. That's the right kind of anger. Anger is a wonderful emotion. And it must be exercised in church and in your Christian life. But it must be done appropriately. When we hear about people being shot in our city, kids being shot in our city, should we not be angry at that? Yes, we should be angry. We should be livid. That's what's happening in our city. God is angry at that. But you can be angry and judgmental and say, well... That serves them right in those neighborhoods, right? How many of us think that? That's not an appropriate kind of anger. That's a sinful anger. That's the old self kind of anger. The right kind of anger would be, I am angry at the violence, and I care for the people that are affected by it. And I want to help, and I want to see change. You see, godly anger is edifying anger. It's not destructive. It's edifying because you're seeking positive change through it. Paul says in verse 32, he says, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Because of the tremendous mercy extended to us through Christ, we too can forgive others and be kind and compassionate with them. What a wonderful way to live. What if we could all live this way, being compassionate and kind and forgiving? Instead of bitterness and rage, we can have kindness and tenderness. All right, one more example. Verse 29, he says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Remember, the old self gets angry and starts slandering and arguing and brawling. The new self speaks appropriately. What does that mean? Sometimes it's a rebuke. Sometimes it's a confrontation. Sometimes it's encouragement. But all is done with grace. We want to forgive. We want to be tender. We want to be kind. We want to help the person we are speaking. Christian speech is supposed to be building up and encouraging and gracious. Now, you look at all those things, you should have a pretty good idea of what the new way of life looks like. The question is, is this how you live? Sinless anger, gracious speech, working so you can share with others, not grieving the Spirit, being truthful and kind and forgiving. If you see those traits in your life, praise God that He has blessed you like that. Praise God that He has changed you. And some of you have stories of dramatic transformation where you would say, I am not like I used to be. It was bad. My old self was bad. And now God has done a work in me, and I am different. Yes, and I'm tender sometimes. And I'm gracious. And I'm forgiving. And I'm kind. And when I speak to people, I, I, I seek to build them up. Praise God 
if you see those traits in you. If not, if you don't see those traits, we need to learn to put on the new self, to change, to put on the new self in Christ. Now, if you're a believer, here's an appropriate question to be asking right now. But didn't I put on the new self when I became a Christian? How can I, a believer in Christ, saved by Him, renewed and and revived and awakened to the new reality, the true reality of life, how can I still have the old self on me? I thought I put on the new self when I got converted. And now all I have is the new self. Well, you know as a Christian, you know when you're acting according to your old self and when you're acting according to your new self. Don't you know that it's easy to revert back to the old way of living, to the old way of thinking, to the old way of feeling. Don't you know that? That's why Paul was writing to believers. He's writing to Christians in Ephesus. And he's saying, don't walk like the Gentiles walk. Why? Because they're walking like Gentiles are walking. He's saying, don't live in the way that, that you used to live when you were unconverted. Assuming that some of them, some of us are living that way. We've gone back to the way out of which God saved us. Now, if you are a careful Bible reader, you would notice that this particular list of vices that Paul has here, because he's contrasting, he says, you know, don't do this, do this, don't steal, work, right? Most of these are not these obvious big sins that we talked about. Now, for example, he's not talking about kidnapping people, he's not talking about murder, he's not talking about all those big things that sometimes, and most of the time, make their way into the list of vices in Scripture. What is he talking about? He's talking about slander, right? Grieving the Holy Spirit, being bitter, uh, talking to somebody in a way that's not edifying, being judgmental, not speaking the truth, but pretending to others. Those sins sound like church sins to me. Those sound like Christian sins. What Paul is talking about, he's saying, yes, you are a Christian, and yes, you have put on the new self, but now you've gone back to the old self and you're acting kind of like before you were saved. And you're doing that in the church. So he's picking out these particular sins that are so prevalent in the church and in our church. He's talking about being judgmental. That is the Christian sin. Friends. You know that, that old Simpsons episode where uh, somebody goes to Christian camp and comes back being judgmental? and saying, I learned being judgmental at camp. They taught me that at Christian camp. That is, that is typical. Oh, we love to be judgmental. We love to look down at somebody and say, but I'm so much better because I'm a Christian. And Paul is saying, no, 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 that's not how you act. That's how the old self acts. That is not how the new self acts. You don't come across hypocritical and judgmental and bitter. You don't slander and gossip. Another big Christian sin. No, he's saying, live according to your new self. Let me give you an example. If you are married, especially if you're married, you know, especially if you're a guy, when men get married, we go through this amazing uh, makeover, put it this way. Our, our wardrobe gets changed. Uh, we, 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 we accept new hairstyles. We start uh, taking better care of ourselves and personal hygiene becomes way more important 
especially through the dating and the, the honeymoon period. Later, it kind of drops off a little bit. But And so, because now we're with this new person who cares about all those things. All of a sudden, we start caring about clothes, and we buy shirts with buttons, you know, if you're a man. And, and you buy pants that actually is your size. And, and, and so you start wearing different things. And it's as if you're putting on this new set of clothes for this person. Now that you've encountered this wonderful person, and they've changed you, and you want to keep them, you're going to do what you can to keep them. And so you're saying, okay, I'm going to wear different clothes. It's okay. I'm just going to trust my wife that what she tells me to wear is actually going to be good for me. So I'm, not, I'm going to suspend my judgment. It no longer matters what I think. I'm just going to accept what she thinks, and I'm going to look good. But you also know, if you're a man, that in your closet you have kept a few pieces of clothing from the old way. Have you not? There's that old T-shirt, isn't there, from college. That's ripped up now, but it has the sentimental value to you. And every once in a while, you pull it out, and you put it on, and you parade around the house, trying to establish your, your independence and, and saying that I know what fashion is like too and I can pick my own clothes and of course you can't. That is what happens when you as a Christian start acting in the old way. 